Every missionary is well acquainted with the oft-quoted passage from the book of Amos, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And every member of this Church loves to sing that favorite hymn, We thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. What secrets has the Lord God revealed unto his servant, the prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball? Were he here this evening, what advice and counsel would he provide you and me to guide us in these latter days? Would we listen? Would we obey? Would we be doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving our own selves? Some time ago, President Kimball met with all of us general authorities on the upper floor of the temple. He stood and spoke to us and declared, Brethren, for some time I have been worried and concerned over the fact that we do not have sufficient numbers of missionaries to carry the message of the Restoration effectively to all of the peoples of the world. He continued, I have been in the presence of some mothers and fathers who have said, We are encouraging our boy John to make a decision to serve a mission, but the decision is his. We hope he goes. Brother Kimball continued, I have seen and heard some young men speaking together, and they have said, We are attempting to make up our minds whether we would like to serve a mission. President Kimball stood on his tiptoes that day and raised his voice an octave as he's prone to do when he wants to make a point with emphasis. And he declared, Brethren, it doesn't really matter whether mother and father think that it would be a nice idea for John to go on a mission. It doesn't really matter whether Dick and Tom and Pete want to go or not. They simply must go. And then he emphasized our responsibility to repay the missionary system, where missionaries of an earlier day left home and family and served and sacrificed that our parents and our grandparents might hear the glorious message of truth. I love to read my own grandfather's missionary journal. The first two entries are classics. The first one reads, Today is the happiest day of my life. My sweetheart and I went to the Salt Lake Temple and were married for time and for all eternity. The very next night, he wrote in his journal, I think with a little more uh, poignancy, Tonight the bishop called at our house, and I have been asked to return to Scandinavia for a two-year mission. Of course I will go, and my sweet wife will remain at home and sustain me. I am grateful for that kind of missionary heritage. We of the Council of the Twelve have the opportunity occasionally to hear President Benson relate the missionary experience of his family, how his father was called to leave home on a two-year mission and leave behind his wife, seven children, with the eighth on the way, the home, the farm, everything dear to him. Did he lose anything? Brother Benson indicates how his mother would call the boys and girls of an evening to surround the kitchen table and there, by the flickering flame of an oil-fueled lamp, she would read to the children the missionary letter from their father. 
Once in a while, she'd pause to wipe away a tear. What was the result? Every one of those children filled a full-time mission. As you and I respond to President Kimball's clarion call to missionary service, I would suggest that we could profitably examine the Aaronic priesthood pathway, which provides the instruction, quickens the desire, and leads the lad who walks along it not only to a full-time mission, but to marriage in the temple and, at journey's end, exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God. It's essential, critical, that we examine this Aaronic priesthood pathway because far too many boys today falter, stumble, and fall and fail to cross that finish line into the Melchizedek priesthood quorums. In fact, today, for the first time in the history of the Church, the number of prospective elders is greater than the number of holders of the Melchizedek priesthood, thereby eroding our active priesthood base and placing lovely women in a position of inactivity as wives of these brethren, and likewise frustrating the desire of children of promise. What should we do? How can we save every boy? I would suggest that we initially look at the headwaters of the Aaronic priesthood stream. There's an old Chinese proverb which purports to determine the sanity of an individual. A person is shown a stream flowing into a stagnant pond. That individual is handed a bucket and asked to drain the pond. If the person first diverts the inflow of the stream, that individual is judged as sane. If, however, he disregards that inflowing stream and begins to drain the pond bucket by bucket, he is judged insane. I testify, brethren, that if we want to meet the challenge of the growing numbers of prospective elders in this Church, we need to redouble our efforts with the Aaronic priesthood of the Church. Bishops, you are the presidents of the Aaronic priesthood in your wards and president of the quorums of priests. You cannot delegate these God-given assignments. Oh, you may share the responsibility with your counselors and should, and you, brethren, may choose wonderful men, faithful men, boys' men, to be Aaronic priesthood quorum advisors, models worthy to follow. Were I a bishop again tonight, I would turn to my second counselor and say, Brother Balmforth, your chief responsibility in the bishopric of this ward is to look after the deacons, to ensure that when each boy arrives at the age of 14, he is worthy and is ordained a teacher. I would turn to my first counselor and say, Brother Hemingway, your assignment is to work with the boys who are in the teacher's quorum, to ensure that when each one arrives at the age of 16, he is worthy and is ordained a priest. And as the bishop, I will take the responsibility to work with those who are priests to ensure that when they are in their nineteenth year, they are worthy, prepared, ordained elders, and called to fill full-time missions. By saving every boy, brethren, we provide a worthy husband for each one of our worthy young women. We strengthen the ranks of the Melchizedek priesthood, and we provide a missionary force capable 
to meet the expectations of the Lord and our beloved prophet and president, Spencer W. Kimball. Where might we first start in our objective? I would like to suggest that every deacon in this Church be given a spiritual awareness of the sacredness of his ordained calling. This occurred in my life when I was a deacon, when the bishopric invited me to take the sacrament to an elderly shut-in who lived about a mile from the chapel. That Sunday morning, as I knocked on the home of Edward Wright and heard a feeble, Come in! I entered not only a humble home, I entered a room filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I approached Brother Wright and told him at his bedside that I had been assigned to bring him the sacrament. I then took a little piece of the bread and put it to his lips that he might eat. Then I cradled his head in my left hand, lifted him a little bit, and took a little cup of water and put it to his lips that he might drink. As I prepared to leave him, he embraced me and said, Thank you, and God bless you, my boy. And God has blessed me with an appreciation of the emblems that remains with me even tonight. May I suggest that every ordained teacher be given the assignment to be a home teacher. What better preparation could he possibly have for missionary work than this? It is an introduction to the discipline of duty, and a boy doesn't find it difficult to shed undue interest in himself when he is assigned to watch over others. And what of the priests, these young men who have the assignment to baptize, to bless the sacrament? Oh, I remember when I was a deacon, we would marvel and admire the work of the priests of the ward. We had one priest in the ward by the name of Barry. Oh, he was quite an individual. He would read the sacrament prayer as though he were participating in a speech contest. The elderly people of the ward would say, Oh, Barry, we love to hear you bless the sacrament. You are so clear in your speaking voice. I think he became a little proud. Then we had a priest by the name of Jack who had a hearing impediment, and that gave him a difficult time speaking, and his speech was rather mechanical. We deacons would twitter when he would bless the sacrament. How we dared do so, I'll never understand. He was tall, and he was broad, and he had a hand like a bear. He could have crushed any one of us deacons, but he never said a negative word. One day, Barry with the golden voice and Jack with the difficult delivery were teamed side by side at the sacrament table. The sacrament hymn was sung. The bread was broken. We lowered our heads, we closed our eyes. Barry, with a golden voice, knelt down on the little stool to bless the bread, and nothing happened. After what seemed like an eternity, I lifted my head and opened my eyes and beheld a scene I shall never forget. Here was Barry, frantically searching the top of the sacrament table, looking in vain for the little white card on which would appear the blessing on the bread and the blessing on the water. It was nowhere to be found. Barry was pink in the face, and then more people began to look at him, and he turned crimson. What to do? 
And then I saw Jack with that great big bear-like hand simply take hold of Barry's shoulder and sit him down. And then he knelt down on the little stool and he declared, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it. And he continued the prayer. We passed the bread. He blessed the water. We passed the water. We deacons gained a new appreciation for Jack that day, who, though he were limited in his speaking, he so loved his duty as a priest that he took the time to commit to memory those sacrament prayers. Barry, too, gained a new appreciation for Jack. <laughs> they became fast friends. Beyond the influence of the bishoprics and beyond the influence of the Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Advisors is the influence of the home as pertains to the boy who travels the Aaronic Priesthood pathway. The wise and carefully administered help of mother and father can make the difference between success and failure. Our recent studies show that the home, more than any other factor, is the chief determinant in determining whether a young man fills a mission and whether he marries in the temple. And let's not overlook you young men who are presidencies of Aaronic priesthood quorums. The Lord has been crystal clear in your instruction. He said, Verily I say unto you, the duty of the president of the office of a deacon is to preside over twelve deacons, to sit in council with them, and to teach them their duty, edifying one another as it has been given according to the covenants. And likewise the similar instruction to the president of the teacher's quorum and to the president of the priest's quorum. And may I ask you stake presidents tonight, are you utilizing effectively your stake Aaronic priesthood committee? Do these brethren visit on an orderly rotation basis the Aaronic priesthood quorums in every ward in every stake? Does each one have a list by name and talent and background of every deacon and every teacher and every priest in the stake? Generalities simply will not do, for when we deal in generalities, we will rarely have a success. But if we deal in specifics, we will rarely have a failure. It can be done, brethren, and must be done. As I look on this stand and see my associate, Joseph B. Wirthlin, I remember that when he was a bishop, he presided over a quorum of 45 priests. All 45 were ordained elders. All 45 filled full-time missions. The late Alvin R. Dyer, a member of the first quorum of the 70, he presided over a quorum of 48 priests, 46 of whom filled full-time missions, 47 of whom married in the temple. Brethren, we must save every boy. When I was a bishop, I recall one Sunday morning that one of our priests was missing, Richard. I left the quorum in the able care of our quorum advisor and visited Richard's home to determine where he was. His mother said that he was working at the West Temple garage. I drove over there. The station was open, 
But Richard was not to be found, not in the office, not in the restrooms, not around the pumps. I was about to leave, and then the inspiration came to me to look in the old grease pit out behind the station, the kind that's below the surface of the ground. A car was resting on the runners. I stooped down and looked into the depths of that pit. I saw two beady eyes staring back at me. And then I heard Richard say, I'm coming up, Bishop. And he came up, and he came out, and he never missed a priesthood meeting in our ward. Later his family moved. But how thrilled I was about a year from that time when Bishop Arthur Spencer of the Wells Stake telephoned me and advised that Richard had been called on a mission to Mexico and would I come and speak at his farewell testimonial. Can you appreciate my joy when Richard stood to respond and said that his decision to serve a mission came on Sunday morning, not at the chapel, but when he was in the depths of a grease pit and he looked up and saw silhouetted against the blue sky the outstretched hand of his quorum president. I was humbled. It was John Barry, the Scottish poet, who said, God gave us memories that we might have June roses in the December of our lives. It has been my experience, brethren, that some of the most fragrant and beautiful roses bloom in profusion along the erotic priesthood pathway. On that pathway are feet to strengthen, hands to grasp, minds to instruct, hearts to inspire, and souls to save. Tonight, I invite all of you men to join with me, together with all of the Aaronic priesthood of this Church, as we walk shoulder to shoulder along the priesthood pathway, which leads onward and upward to perfection. For this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.